Seattle Autonomous Zone. Here we are. Um, let's start there. Yeah. Let's start there. Yeah. Watching the it's it's really weird to see like the mainstream uh, like headlines on this is like chaos inside the <laughs> Seattle Autonomous Zone. Then, then you look, it's like, what are they doing? Oh, they're like watching a movie. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seem to be getting pizza. Uh, <laughs> and uh, hanging out, it's like I mean, it's about as chaotic as like if you had walk. I don't know, like walked inside like a uh, you know housing co-op in Berkeley in the early two thousands. Like it's yeah, it's, it's that chaotic. Well, still markedly cooler than that. Yeah, yeah way way cooler. I, yeah, yeah. This is just wild. I mean, I think the funniest thing when when all of these like mainstream sort of like you know like outlets are like covering what they're describing as like chaos it also is just funny to think like i mean yeah these people are like erecting a quasi state inside of sort of like a six Mm -hmm. block area presumably there's gonna be some confusion it wasn't (laughs) I think many of them would probably have some contention with your use of the word state there, buddy, but that's okay. All right. All um, right. But, but regardless. I mean, it is I'm an just, anarchist and like autonomous zone, you know, so. Stateless Indeed. zone. Yeah. Stateless exactly. zone. I mean, regardless, they're, they're building something. Just give them a minute, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. if in six months they're still eating pizza and watching movies, then, then you can call it lawless chaos. No, then they yeah. won. Then they won. Then they won. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the death panel the official podcast of barda the biomedical advanced research and development authority real talk though actually after the main episode we have another surprise like last week um and so stick around for a conversation with heron walker i talked to heron earlier today about a piece that she wrote in esquire so we had a really great conversation about trans health care and covid And thank you, patrons. We can't do cool shit like this without you. So really appreciate it. Anyways. You know, I think the really important thing is that it's like here it is happening and there should be more like this. I mean, we could have autonomous zones like across America Mm -hmm. if we wanted Mm -hmm. to. Yeah, I like what one of the organizers said. Um, There's a quote in like a Capitol Hill, Seattle, which is like a local politics blog or, or like community blog there. The organizer is quoted as saying, I guess whatever the fuck we're doing is effective because essentially what the sort of autonomous zone centers around a a precinct in Seattle, a police precinct, the East Precinct, which has been abandoned by the Seattle police. And the autonomous zone is like surrounding this police precinct that has been surrendered for whatever reason. The so the Capitol Hill neighborhood essentially was locked down. It's also historically, as we can get into, has been like a site of a lot of contestation in Seattle. It is like the neighborhood that the Battle of Seattle mm-hmm. partially at least happened in. It's where uh, protests got like pushed to called like pushed up the hill, up mm-hmm. Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, we found an article from 2014 about basically the police intentionally pushing protesters into the exact same area. And like historically throughout, like since at least right. the 1999 WTO protests and yeah. up through until... Um, 
at least like the most recent was like for when uh, protests were happening around like stuff in Ferguson in yeah, 2014. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but basically like the Capitol Hill neighborhood had been like totally locked down. Like you needed uh, IDs and stuff to like go in and out. It was a very like extremely militarized police force. Mm-hmm. And they eventually took the barricades away and said, essentially, we're going to like allow the protesters to pass through. But then this very weird thing happened where there were like, quote unquote, rumors that Mm -hmm. there was going to be that they were going to set fire to the police station. Um, This like, again, it's like unclear what exactly happened here, because Mm -hmm. um, at at some level, like an order went out clearly to like, basically, they don't want to say abandon, but basically abandon the police station. Fall back. I think Um, it literally said like retreat or fall back or something in the order. So there was this like weird afternoon uh, where they were like unloading everything of value and people could see them like literally they had a shredding truck which is so sketchy out, yeah at the back yeah. um but the but notably you know everyone that they've like pretty like pretty much everyone on the on the ground that people have talked to and like or like everything that i've seen in all the local reporting mm-hmm. has basically said that like it's almost seems like them withdrawing from the police station seemed like a tactic that woefully backfired like yeah. they were gonna right. say they were gonna scaremonger about uh, like, oh, there's going to be arson at the police station. And then no one actually wanted to do that or something. They, I mean, they, they still could if they wanted they to. Sent, but, right. They sent out a letter to all the neighboring businesses based on the presumption that the protesters would set fire to the police precinct offering to spray their businesses yeah. in like a anti-fire foam oh, cool. spray as they abandoned the precinct and i think it was like every single business owner was like no <laughs> what and we then don't want the phone the protesters actually never had any intention of burning the precinct in the first place this was like um it seems to be it appears that this was sort of just an assumption that the police made a judgment call that was like severely um a not sound judgment i would say but mm-hmm. it makes for fantastic fun and i love that this happened so yeah. much mm-hmm. so i think on the first again it's been happening since monday on like the first night mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. or after the first night or something basically the so the police had withdrawn from the police station mm-hmm. they they set up operation and basically like vans outside of a uh like in a school parking lot um, right. until then basically the school told them to fuck off yeah so they had <laughs> yeah. to leave Excellent. um and then they moved to a university parking lot and then the university <laughs> told them fuck to off. fuck off yeah so. i think that was seattle u right yeah yeah and now they're in a Safeway, i think oh yeah the parking yeah they had to rent um like commercial a uh, commercial parking lot for a staging area for their fucking tanks and crap <laughs> um <laughs> free ride is over but it's just funny on the map it's says it says it says uh it says like regime occupied safeway (laughs) perfect show me the line safeway is regime occupied safeway now yeah i love it i love it (laughs) totally i Uh, i also really appreciate that in the demands uh the free capitol hill demands that were posted on on the medium they say that they're they demand that the city council and the mayor, whoever that may be, implement changes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I think that we've learned... We're ready to be here for some time. You know, I, I, I mean, I think we've like... The collective understanding and, and movement against austerity and incrementalism, I think, is so strong now compared to where it was five years ago, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's so fantastic to see people like anticipate 
some of these moves collectively and, and you know, do some like counter tactics to that. It feels mm-hmm. really nice to watch. Yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. there's like there's going to be this question, I think. And, you know, I have not I've not steeped myself enough in what's going on and and the sort of political situation in, in Seattle to like have a firm position on it. But it's just like to open up that question is like, well, what does this mean? What does this portend? Is this you know, uh, there's there's an attempt to try to come at this like a sort of old school, like Marxist uh, technological historian to say, like, you know, where is this like in time and, and like, what is this portend? But but I mean, I, I don't think we can say I don't think it's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, worthwhile to like try to like trace that out. But it is worth like focusing on just how important this is and, and also like the fact that regardless of like what what this like what the ultimate sort of like fracture this sets up is like in the short term here here's a group of people who have taken over and defended territory that once was defended by the state yeah um mm-hmm. and have a set of demands on the state uh for what it will take to like have some kind of like detente and that's mm-hmm. that's a really like regardless of like what your tendency is, I guess, I think you have to be able to see like the significance of that. Right. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that like, is that too prescriptive? I think it's just like, that's what is happening. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. can, we should talk about the demands too. Yeah. Because yes. this, is not, it, this is one of the more, one of the more extensive and encompassing set of demands. And it also really makes, they make sense as a set Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, totally. And we should we should like talk through them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so the first section of their demands address the justice system directly. The first one is obviously that they do not request reform but demand abolition. They call for eliminating the funding, uh, including existing pensions for the police. They also want to disallow operations of ICE within the city of Seattle. They then sort of set up like a plan for a transition during the dismantlement of the Seattle PD, which Mm -hmm. would ban armed force entirely. So this is like no guns, no shields, no batons, no, what what were they called? Like pepper balls? (laughs) No pepper Pepper balls. balls. TM. Yeah, Yeah. TM. Um, No Safari Land brand tear gas. Um, (laughs) Or any brand for that matter. Or any brand. uh, (laughs) And not in the way that they did that 30-day ban on chemical weapons use in Seattle, which they violated the next, no, the same day or the next day? Like that evening. That evening, right? 20 minutes later. They must have uh, found some, I'm sure like uh, Jeff Bezos had like some spare CS gas in his basement. (laughs) There was a loophole in in the order from the mayor that said no like no chemical weapons like, for 30 days at discretion of the police or except something. At the discretion <laughs> of the chief of police exactly yeah. that was in the text right so fuck yeah sorry let's move yeah, on yeah yeah no but it's but I, I think what's i don't know what what was interesting to me about this was like how much time they actually do spend on sort of like their vision for a transition not not just like what they want to get to right which is you know like the complete abolition of police but but rather like how it's it's interesting to me at least specifically about how much time they spend on like here is what we expect in the interim here is what we expect 
it, like during the transition in the next, you know, sort of like from now until, you know, it's almost yeah. like these people well, are better at making plans than even the plan <laughs> queen herself, Miss Elizabeth yeah, Warren. Yes. If they can plan for an immediate, you know, sort of abolition of police, then Liz Warren could have planned for a one year transition to Medicare for all. But it's just, you know, maybe she's just not that good at planning. Um, and these, are, these are also these 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 plans. The refreshing thing about reading them and like we should we should definitely like link to them. Read them. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it is yeah. it is the absolute antidote to the like sort of policyization of what must be yeah. effective, like moral demands on the like the refoundation of institutions, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Sh- cannot be subjected to policy analysis or exempt from policy analysis. This is what they mm-hmm. are. Um, I don't know. I just, I found that great. Yeah. Which I mean, as we talked about in our last uh, public episode last week, even (laughs) if you want reformism, Mm -hmm. you know, like abolition is the reform, you know what I mean? Like abolition is already like a, a reform tactic. Right. Mm -hmm. Obviously like, you know, how to put it, abolition is linked to a bunch of other like exigent demands and dethroning of capitalism basically. But I think one of the things that's great too, is that if you like, remember the things that we used to complain about back when we, you know, electoral politics was what dominated the news, you know, it was like, whoever's like the plans that are being released are, are subtle and also like dismissive and, and patronizing. And it just sucks to read. And this is absolutely the opposite. Mm -hmm. Then they get into demanding, um, ending the prison to school, school to prison pipeline, um, there is also a new uh, youth prison being built in Seattle, which they demand for it to be repurposed. Mm-hmm. They, of course, have like demands that address like the, the people who have been arrested during the protests and just essentially like a bunch of different ways to sort of like, um, well, I can make this joke, right? To cripple the justice system within the city of <laughs> Seattle. Yeah. Again, like read the read the thing. We'll, we'll like link to it. Um, so we're not going to go through all of it, but I think it is, especially in a moment where it's good to see, um, stuff like this. First of all, obviously again, the seizure and creation of an autonomous zone within an American city, uh, and within the American state, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you love to see it. Um, (laughs) like also second seeing, I think it's great to see explicit like demands come out of this and be able to be concretely linked to, particularly in a time when, as we actually kind of have been talking about in our last couple of episodes when the defund language is being like actively weaponized against mm-hmm. uh like a, like we're not weaponized actively like retooled in the public sphere right basically mm-hmm. against what defund means and i think it's telling that for example like you know this this list of demands um again it came out today i think this happened yesterday but um there's this great moment in a in like some of the local reporting where kashama sawant the uh, city council member who's part of the uh socialist alternative party right. i think that's, um, yeah who a lot of like people in seattle call them pretty strict reformers basically like uh she went i guess and there was a there was a quote or there was a piece in this article where basically like Sawant went to speak to the mm-hmm. uh to the people occupying the chaz and proposed basically the like a 50 percent reduction in 
police funding mm -hmm. to like to defund by 50%, at which point, I guess, uh, a bunch of the people occupying said, whose side are you on? And like started badgering her basically, um, <laughs> about being yeah. like a, a, like a reformer. Yeah, no, it's, you love to see it. You really do. And I think also like this document has a lot of, um, things that could be applicable in a lot of different cities It addresses like you know, all sorts of like, how do we dismantle like the cases that have been dismissed by police oversight or people currently in jail? You know, I, I mm -hmm. wonder if this will, I don't think this is going to be the end of like people saying that this movement is like, doesn't have demands at all. Um, even though that's very clearly not the case. Oh, obviously not. Cause they're not going to see this as linked at right, all. Exactly. Right. But like, this is going to get spun in the national narrative as like, uh, like, oh, we found the CEO of Antifa, basically. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, but what I would love to see is, like, more people taking this and, you know, creating one for their own city inspired by these demands and then popping up everywhere. Like, that would mm -hmm. be pretty fucking cool. Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good way of posing it, which is, the, like, what would be possible? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because then they would have to find a different way of... They would have to find a different way of describing this. If, if there were many, not, not one, but many autonomous zones, um, right. it, it actually would, the, the, the demands describe what has been happening for the last few weeks is the George Floyd rebellion. And my, my hunch is that if there were a series of autonomous zones, uh, across the country, the term rebellion would really start to resonate with a lot more people than it is right now. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Absolutely. No, this Hell is, yeah. so I love the term, I love the term demonstration because demonstration like has, I like the thing demonstrations better because it, there are two, two things like demonstrating, meaning like protesting, but also demonstrating in the sense of right. sh <laughs> showing you how it's done. This yeah, is a exactly. demonstration in both this of those This is senses. in fact how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, but that is, that is, that is all really important though. I think that that point about rebellion is like a linking, uh, being able to like link the word rebellion, uh, to it and making it more explicitly clear by, for instance, like the actual seizure of territory, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to the, to, again, explicitly having like the demands, like this is, this is, this goes back, I think in some ways to like the many criticisms, like the popular imagination criticisms of Occupy, right. Mm -hmm. That like mm -hmm. people yeah. were, um, occupying wall street to the extent of like, or to, to the goal of like, you know, pot like potentially wanting to basically like end capitalism or whatever. But the idea being that, oh, the protesters goals aren't clear or something <laughs> right. or, uh, it doesn't know, look it, like the idealized the version. <laughs> it doesn't look like the idealized version of a social movement I have in my head. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which I mean, like, I think one of the things that's nice is you're also seeing some like uh, very positive demonstrations of quote unquote, like society continuing as normal, which like if you juxtapose that with. Oh, you mean like how elections are going great? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you compare that to the yeah. non-autonomous societies, if you compare the autonomous zone to the non-autonomous uh, occupied territory. That's a good point. Yeah. Which was more yes. functional right? yesterday? The, uh, the Capitol Hill <laughs> autonomous zone or a, in any individual Just voting saying. location in Georgia. Just saying yeah. that I think the they Seattle had more legitimacy. Yeah. They had yeah. Movies and pizza. I'm just and... saying that's, a, that's just me from my perspective. It looks like <laughs> the Seattle autonomous zone is more competent and a better structure than the entire state of Georgia. But that's just me. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> 
Um, we should actually like talk about the voting situation, though. Um, yesterday, there were more primaries um, because that is still happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Georgia's primary in particular, Phil, I think you had a really good take on this on Twitter. Where you, I think you said like, it's not that we're seeing like new uh, voter suppression. It's just that we're seeing like the most extreme examples of current voter suppression all at once. Yeah. I mean, I was just sort of like, I always find it interesting, like what, how this like kind of thing gets abstracted into the public imaginary and the headlines that like the AP was running were Mm -hmm. just messy primary, which reminded me a lot (laughs) of the way that people describe the Wisconsin primary messy primary. It's somehow unacceptable, you know, and editorial conventions being what they are, it's unacceptable to to uh, I, I guess describe uh, this just as voter suppression. You know, you can't call it <laughs> just having here voter suppression, but um, it is. It is if you think of the and all the reporting, of course, is going to be about like the. Uh, the, the sort of the technical details, like mm-hmm. were there enough, were there enough uh, voting mm-hmm. machines, and, and how new were the voting machines, and, and did people know how to run them, and so on. Uh, but the uh, the fact is that that over time, Georgia has been cutting the number of polling places. Right yeah. after after the mm-hmm. Supreme Court like gutted the Voting Rights Act, it closed two hundred and fourteen polling places. Oh state of Jesus Christ. There were eighty Christ. fewer. There were eighty fewer polling places. For the June primary in metropolitan Atlanta, which is where the, the, you know, the uh, secretary of state or the the sort of election official in in uh, Georgia is going to say that, like, oh, it's really only a problem located in two counties. It's like, oh, those just happen to be the two most like populous counties in the entire state. And they also happen to be where the majority of the black population of the state of Georgia lives. So uh, kind of duplicitous to just say, oh, this is really a problem in two counties. (laughs) Also, I think like one in 10 uh, polling places had to, not had to be like, I don't want to buy into that framing, but like one in 10 polling places, like 10% of them were relocated. Mm-hmm. And so. they also did the thing where they like sent out the notices very weird about that, which we saw in other states um, yeah. earlier this year. I mean, one of the things that's also funny is that this is happening concurrently with developments in the voter fraud case that surrounds the Georgia Stacey Abrams election, um, which is being used sort of as a way to try and deal with their like really ancient and really horrible electronic touchscreen voting machines, which keep no paper record and make no backups mm-hmm. and are incredibly vulnerable to attack. So there's like, it's like part of that like old Russiagate news from like a million years ago. And I totally forgot about that this was happening until I saw it drop silently yesterday in the midst of all the other Georgia crap going on relating to voting. Um, they're still using these stupid machines, by the way, and they've been trying for 12 years to get rid of them. But like, so essentially what's what's come out is that like three or four days after the charges were filed, the server holding all the backups for the election data for that election was wiped. And then like two months later, and that was like in mid-July, I think they were served on like July 3rd and on July 6th or 7th, the server was like fully wiped. And then they like wiped the backups right after that happened. So now there's like nothing actually to look at except for maybe the FBI made a copy and now the FBI won't comment, which is just insane. <laughs> Classic <laughs> FBI yeah. behavior. Uh, like, 
No, I always think about when I when I hear about stuff like this, I my mind always goes back to like the 2000 election and and the, the chads <laughs> and the, the butterfly ballot. Yeah. You're, you, oh, you lived in God. Florida, B. You know, you, you you get all this stuff. Just the the whole discussion of technology after that was supposed to be that uh, we had this like federal law to encourage states to buy electronic sort of rational, efficient machines. <laughs> but over time, like it became very clear that there were one there's one type of machine that is terrible. And that's the type of machine that doesn't have a paper record attached to it. There's yeah. another type of, there are several other types of machines that have paper record. They, ju- they are just better by any standard of like accountability, uh, that you want to like make. And yet what can we conclude from the fact that these other machines still sell, <laughs> there's still a market from them. What does that tell us? Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it, it's like, it makes me speechless. It's just insane that those things. Yeah, it's like insane that those. Still Been doing exist. a lot also, of that recently, Vince. <laughs> I know. I just. It's I can't. Okay, I just can't. I fucking can't. Like every every of, episode, we build Vince up, we smash him, <laughs> and then it, it takes. Or sorry, till let me, let me till the next that. episode. He rises, every, he rises like a phoenix, and then we spend the subsequent couple of days picking his brain back together, which is why, <laughs> which is why there are you know only two episodes a week. Um, I mean, it's it's wild. <laughs> it takes like a the, while to put that it like back. Effect, that like effectively those touchscreen voting machines. Like I'm trying to think of like an analogous uh, like tech product that that but realistically what they are is essentially a palm pilot i was gonna say palm pilot because but (laughs) but even more stupid because a a touchscreen voting machine with a bad touchscreen that has no paper record like right yeah this is not like it's like designed to be bad obviously and and obviously like across the state basically these machines were like mostly either shut down or like not working for long right. periods of the day. Also, mm-hmm. obviously there are like not enough to begin with. Right. Um, but then beyond even the question of the, the machines, which I think it's interesting that yes, these two uh, bits of news kind of like, you know, collided at the same it's time so basically <laughs> about, about Georgia, but there are just so many other layers of sort of clear, like clear either incompetence or outright. <laughs> I like, like malicious intent, yeah. Malice. Like outright, yeah, outright, just like yeah. malice. Just like yeah. outright malice, yeah. yeah. Um, like for example, I don't know if you guys caught this, but like speaking of Stacey Abrams, right. Stacey Abrams herself received a mail-in ballot. It arrived with the envelope sealed. It's like the return envelope. <laughs> like the return envelope was already sealed. She gave an interview saying, "I tried to steam it open yeah. and I couldn't even steam <laughs> exactly. it open, so I had to go oh vote in person." This is like what I mean when I say we've already, I mean, we've been talking for weeks really about all the various ways that like the state has completely failed. Like we like live mm-hmm. in a failed state oh, right for sure. now. Um, and it is, it, I mean, it's, it's wild even think, I mean like the, the newspaper example that Phil uh, brought up is like very weird evidence because it's almost like, yes, obviously there's like rampant voter suppression in the, mm-hmm. in, in Georgia and the, so much of like the fundamental like machinery of, how voting is carried out mm-hmm. is totally again either like in either willfully or just like through negligence and underfunding or whatever uh like left left to not work basically and so <laughs> yeah. but but what are you gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna call that out or call that like a 
clearly not free and fair election, you know, right. Um, right. even though like, what, what are you worried about that? It's going to like erode faith in democracy. If the New York <laughs> times prints that, are you fucking kidding? Like democracy it's does already, it's going to erode. That's the pushback. That's the pushback that I always get when I talk, try to talk about this stuff in what I consider to be fairly like cut and dry yet frank terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that people will say is, or they will point to the norm of, you know, accepting the results of an election. And my response to that is always, since when does that norm apply under any conditions? Right. right. That norm right. clearly does not apply under any conditions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, so, well, there's operating the machines and there's also interpreting the rules on the ground, which is, mm-hmm. you sure. know, I, I, I think, and, and some of this, some of this is that there, there's certainly evidence of, of, of abject bias, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's been audit studies that send uh, election officials uh, requests for information about voter ID and they randomize the surname of the person sending the email. And when it is a Hispanic surname, the person is much less likely to receive a response even. Um, so, so, so there's that, but then there's also like s- the sort of simple unintentional bias of when you have uh, registration and, and, and uh, really elaborate procedures for uh, gatekeeping the vote, even a perfectly well-meaning person will have a tendency to interpret those rules over extensively uh, mm-hmm. and not in their most generous way, unless you have an election official who's a, the polling place chief who says, our goal here is to serve voters and to make right. sure that everyone who's eligible to vote can vote. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's so much variation more than we can probably even like trace out its effects. However, this seems pretty clear we have a pretty good <laughs> tradition in Georgia of of and and it's really like by hook or crook, whatever way you want to do it, uh, there are tons of ways to, to disenfranchise people. I my one of my more favorite examples from the uh, the evening was there were voters who were in line until twelve thirty seven in the morning uh, yeah. on Wednesday when when they were there waiting in line, the police were called on them. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, that is that is voting and being black in the United States, uh, especially yeah. in, in Georgia. I mean, this is going to really not look, like reflect well on these people in 50 years. Don't they realize how the history like, well, tech, now. Tech yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, don't they understand how people are going to write about them? That's exactly why they're doing voter suppression. Because <laughs> they say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah. You know, history textbook. because they that's assume a, that's that a they will be right effect. because they assume that they're going to win and that the winners will be writing it. Obviously, exactly. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's uh, it's bad in Georgia. I, I mean, in many other states, here. it's bad in Wisconsin. It's bad. It's bad. true. It's bad. <laughs> true. Yeah. It's not. It's not. Great. And I mean, and think about this: like primaries are really small elections. Mm-hmm. It's something like one third. Maybe like one third of, of registered voters are, are turning out in these elections. Think about uh, November. I mean, think about the fact that it could actually be historic turnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially. There's a potential for historic turnout in the uh, 2020 election. Uh, so, yeah. Oh my yeah, exactly. Fuck by a now, bunch of bomb yeah. pilots. <laughs> That's my turn to get broken for a, a brief moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> I mean, this might be a good time to maybe do a little COVID check-in. Um, mm-hmm. 
there have that's still happening that is still happening um which i was reminded of today when i was talking to heron um yeah, and it's going to be getting worse soon yeah exactly uh, increasingly we're like, we're a like, thing we're now we're now two weeks uh past uh memorial day so now mm-hmm. we get to see what the effective memorial day was oh how did uh, how did the pool go not not good not good yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. and soon we'll get to, I mean, it's really uh, funny and kind of disheartening, frankly, to see so many, even I was noticing like Bloomberg today was like running a story about um, how many, they, I mean, they basically ran a story that said like the second wave is here um, because mm-hmm. um, as we, I don't remember whether this was off mic or not, but like as we were sort of uh, talking about earlier, like cases are like way up in Los Angeles, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or in like LA County, uh, in general. Um, and in a lot of other places in, in the States like Florida, et cetera. Right. And so, you know, even within like the text of that story, they're not like, they like pretty much. And I think it's indicative of all the press coverage. We'll just kind of take everyone, every like public officials word at it, that it has absolutely nothing to do with the reopening, even <laughs> while simultaneously running stories about studies that show that like doing the lockdowns saved like, right. So like X tens of thousands of infections. Mm-hmm. It's maddening. It is pretty maddening, especially considering the fact that like we know that a, a large portion of this sort of disease vector will be because of police officers because they've been predominantly the ones not wearing the masks out at, at like demonstrations and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that'll be super fun. I mean, it's we also are seeing some development on the race to the cure, shall mm-hmm. we call it. Um <laughs> With some like interesting uh, uh, collaborators lining up to give government funding to pharma. Um, yeah. Yeah. So AstraZeneca, one of like I think the top five drug companies in the world, they got a very great contract, $23.7 million in funding to advance development of an antibody based either vaccine or preventative treatment of some kind. And they got some of their some of their funding came from the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which is BARDA. BARDA. Um, but some of it also came from DARPA, which is like secret intelligence projects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. DARPA, which you'll remember from, I don't know, being the guy who has a heart attack at the beginning of Metal Gear Solid or <laughs> as you say, you'll remember them from such from such conspiracy theory hits as controlling the weather and <laughs> the internet. Hey, hey, they did that. Come on. I want to believe, Phil. <laughs> remember that uh remember that drone that just uh dropped a bomb on your head? That uh you made that possible. I mean, like, I think what better ammunition could you give to the the Q crowd or like all the people saying that like COVID is a government conspiracy or like was made by the CIA <laughs> than having DARPA fund an DARPA international and BARDA get together? To, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, are you trying to maybe? Yeah, maybe that's exactly what they're trying yeah, to exactly. do. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, you I mean, asked the question, <laughs> especially considering that like if you, I've, I was trying to look because for some reason, I mean, I should have known I, I i should have known really that like darpa does has done like has a long history of funding drug development because like obviously mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean it is a pandemic it falls under defense well I but guess, it's funny because usually when you look into their biotech stuff it's stuff like um here are some like sample headlines darpa awards 22 million dollars to create smart device for healing large muscle wounds <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> like DARPA funds research into nerve agent drug made using tobacco. Like, you know, they, they fund, I mean, it's like funding moonshots or whatever, basically. Right. Although this is actually less of a the thing that they're doing with AstraZeneca is like less of a moonshot. In fact, there are mm-hmm. like several other companies that are pursuing. So what essentially the funding is for is for a potential monoclonal antibody treatment, mm-hmm. um, which is the same class of drugs as one of mine, rituxin. And, you know, this is sort of like a, a big hot thing. And AstraZeneca has a partnership with like a university. And so they've sort of like this funding's all passed through and they sort of have this open-ended relationship with the university, which is that like whatever work product on monoclonal antibodies that comes out of this lab is like owned by AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they're like, they're like taking, I think that's three or six. They're taking several of these antibodies that this lab has discovered that they've partnered with. And they're going to start clinical trials, I think in two months on two of them. At the beginning um, of August, yeah. Yeah. Which, um, to again, to be fair, like, there are something like six companies who are doing monoclonal antibody things. So, like, this would only be, I think, the second. I think Eli Lilly started um, trials on one. But mm-hmm. I think it's worth, like, pausing on what this is exactly. Because, right. mm-hmm. like, potentially this is a moment where a lot of people will probably get exposed to what this class of drugs like biologics or, or right. monoclonal antibodies are for the first time because like if this does succeed or if one of these drugs do you know quote unquote succeed or like, even just gets more popular in the news right or, yeah. or is even just yeah exactly or if Trump it just mentions popular, it or something right, um, then it will probably be like the first one that probably reaches like a mass consciousness thing even though you know as B mentioned like rituxan one of the drugs that she has to take is like uh, one of the biggest like blockbuster drugs that pharma has ever produced yeah, or something it's, in terms it's of like market. One of the most lucrative drugs ever. So uh, can we explain what monoclonal antibodies are? I, I think guess? we probably should, right? So um, like, okay, so mono means one. <laughs> I'm imagining you with a blackboard. This is good. And rail means rail. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I um, mean, actually, that is kind that is of a, the accurate description in a lot of ways. Yeah, because... Yeah, mono means one, clonal, clonal means Cloned. clone. Uh, antibody is, now everyone knows what an antibody is. <laughs> if they didn't before, everyone do, certainly does now. Um, but it's literally like you you essentially take one uh, antibody that uh, is shown to have some sort of clinical efficacy, basically, and you clone it a bunch of times. If this sounds expensive to you, sort of, yeah, it is. Right. Yeah, I was just gonna um, say that. Well, that sounds it's, like it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because what they are actually oh, doing excellent. is they're it's called it's like monoclonal because they're actually going into um, a, t- a specific type of antibody that has antigens in it that are designed to neutralize pathogens. So it's like identifying specific antibodies, pulling out part of the plasma cell from the antibody and then cloning the plasma cell and creating a new vehicle for it so that they can train it to essentially be targeted to uh, find a receptor that is on a particular cell, be it a virus, a tumor, or like a, a rabid red blood cell, like one of mine or something, you yeah. know, a white blood cell, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's essentially so like, like I said, if it sounds expensive, it, it is. It is <laughs> like we had when we did our rituxan special with, with uh, Charlie, we had this like long jo- like riff, the three of us, Arnie and Charlie and I like joking about whether or not like 
the medicine was alive or not and does it have like rights or is it property <laughs> but you know it is like a very complex as already was saying extremely expensive highly specialized procedure and one of the things that's like also a problem is that in terms of like how these things exist within current mm-hmm. patent law for for pharmaceuticals you can't really make a generic you can make something that's called a biosimilar that that is similar but it'll be based on like a different parent cell essentially Mm -hmm. so it it can't ever actually be exactly the same um and obviously because these drugs are so lucrative it's not that like there are so many people that take rituxin all over the world that it's just like number two grossing Mm -hmm. it's that but if you had a market like covid patients yeah right well imagine the money yeah even if you made it affordable Yeah. Can, can I like ask, like, is it even possible to scale the production of these? There wouldn't. The only thing that will limit our ability to produce this drug is capitalism. Right. Yeah. Like if <laughs> if you were ah. like this drug works, we need to like have an international co- like co- drug cooperative to distribute this to the world. Right. To like end the covid pandemic then there is absolutely no reason that you couldn't scale up to like that scale of production very quickly. The issue then would be that typically these drugs involve like several purification processes, which take time. So you can't Mm -hmm. just like, it's not made as quickly as like a compounded pill that you would swallow is like, you can't Mm -hmm. like pump it out. You could definitely scale up production to produce the volume that you would need, but there's inherently like time in the production process. So it wouldn't be like, it would be like you set up the factory and then like a year later, maybe you have that batch, right? Mm-hmm. But under capitalism, with our current uh, health finance system, like we all know, the four of us, everyone knows, mm-hmm. that's not going to be the way that they do it <laughs> if they do, if we proceed with our present system, shall we say. Yeah, we're not going to get you know. the, the biologic autonomous zone. <laughs> but we could, Nothing is what change. I'm saying. Nothing fundamental will change. Sanofi, AstraZeneca, uh, <laughs> Autonomy Corner or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the autonomous zone brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Though actually, Fuck it's all worth, these rules. It is worth mentioning that uh, AstraZeneca has uh, been... There are rumors in the press that they're talking to Gilead about a merger, which would be one of the biggest uh sure. like pharma companies in the world mm-hmm. but i digress sure. i yield my time i mean it's i think fundamentally though it's like it's it's just it's really interesting and i think telling looking at how like under our current like like this is this is a very good this is a very good thing to like uh investigate obviously it's right like prom- it, it's a promising avenue of, of inquiry on this yeah. uh, mm-hmm. virus for right. sure um but it is still telling under the current uh finance model not just for like drug research and development but also for like what contracts where con where like contracts and and like patent um, licensing, et cetera, goes essentially. And even where like the government the way, funding goes, right? Yeah. But like the, the priorities, some of the priorities that are like happening here are just like really interesting. And I think telling, cause I think it's in the, the press release from this, someone from AstraZeneca essentially says like, um, or if not in the press release, then in, in one of the immediate press comment that they gave, um, someone from AstraZeneca says basically that like you would, this would be 
like because essentially as a monoclonal antibody you'd be you know it's you're administering it you could administer it to like people who are already sick for example so unlike a vaccine Mm -hmm. you could administer it to people who are already sick because you're introducing antibodies into Mm -hmm. the blood Mm -hmm. um that can then uh, ideally like start to attack the virus but also like you can put the antibodies in there and they, they if they don't have the, their target um unless they target other cells too then they're not like you know they're not going to be they're, they they're like going to be there other like you yeah. can get it as a maintenance uh or like preventative like prophylactic therapy to like mm-hmm. attack uh, if you get infected with COVID. If you're even exposed so you can see, to it, yeah. Right, so it's just, you know... So in a way, Vince, your theory about only rich people getting it uh-huh. is kind I mean, of right. That wasn't, right. That wasn't what like what my theory. I'm pretty sure or that's your supposition. what... Yeah, that's what everybody at these companies is. <laughs> Is, that's their that's business their plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, just <laughs> there's you know, a whiteboard somewhere that has exactly what I said written on. <laughs> totally, but also to like the point of like unintentionally fueling conspiracy theories. Like again, between DARPA and uh, like BARDA <laughs> itself, which uh, I mean, there it has a lot of functions, but one of its main functions is like essentially uh, existing or like getting drugs which have like extremely high uh, potential costs like mm-hmm. to market um mm-hmm. if, if they are drugs that are deemed as potentially being like uh you know profligate to the interests of national security mm-hmm. um which has been like this agency which i think only has been in existence since like 2006 or something like that um it's, yeah it's has fresh era been described by one official as quote bridging the valley of death um so like yeah but wow but basically the um, yeah exactly that's a lot but yeah to you know if you're if you're concerned at all about um like optics i guess like i can see (laughs) i can see a tailor-made conspiracy theory where it's basically like okay so now the defense uh like you know various defense agencies are uh within the federal government are basically like getting into this not only for like general quote national quote-unquote defense or whatever but because they want to like make sure that there is a map or something available that they can like pump into trump or whoever right. or whatever yeah. state official i mean know? in astrazeneca's press release they kind of frame it almost as if even though they are talking about a vaccine effort or something that could have the potential to provide an immediate effect in a patient, they are primarily framing it as like a maintenance therapy um, preventative measure. I mean, yeah. um, they say it is hoped that an antibody based treatment could neutralize the SARS CoV 2 virus and thus, in theory, be given as a preventative option for those exposed to the virus as well as to treat and prevent disease progression in patients already infected. And then they go on to say, like, oh, yeah, you know, this would be basically the, the perfect treatment for high risk populations. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that could very, very well be like they go with a a herd immunity plan, brutally let it sweep through the country and like just. And if you can afford the expensive MAB drug, then then you're good. You're good. Well, uh, on top of that, also, it's it's almost as if the uh, capitalist system on which these drugs are developed uh, would really benefit from a recurring revenue model rather than a one time payment situation. Yes. Um, <laughs> figured and, it out, and and perhaps that would even incentivize a corporation to create a less effective 
uh, treatment that you would need to take for your entire short life. I mean, these drugs are very strong. I don't. Sorry, I don't while we're, like while we're just not, stoking. Yeah, I don't like the. Say. I don't like the assertion that there that it's it could be designed to be less effective because I feel like that is giving fodder to uh, you know anti vaxxers and stuff like that because yeah. these drugs are fucking strong. These let are me actually, tell you, this is this actually is, a cool as hell class of drug. I'm actually more concerned yeah. about like essentially whatever becomes of this like wow okay if this becomes something that a large portion of the population is going to need to get as a maintenance infusion like our infusion centers are not ready for that yeah. we don't have the nurses if for that we, we don't have, have the doctors ICUs for that before and if it ha- if this happens and it's allowed to proceed under our current health finance model it will become exactly as cruel abusive fraudulent and wasteful as like dialysis has become yeah. like with the mm-hmm. Vita, totally. you know? And that to me is the, is the greatest worry in SEMA's mind, you know, in the sort of privatized group who, who sort of run the show right now. Like this seems like an opportunity to like birth a whole new industry across mm-hmm. America, right? For franchise, you know, that's, that's the worst possible mm-hmm. outcome in my mind. It's I think it makes me anxious just worrying that if there isn't some sort of broader, you know, expansion of the like the rebellion that's going on, that they are going to like create the sort of cottage industry that's going to have thousands of new people who are so dependent on their health insurance, which if you couple that with the fact that everyone's been fired instead of being like paid through. Um, like government grants to keep people in their jobs. Like people are going to be rehired. Their, their terms of employment are going to be renegotiated. Like who will even have health insurance at the end of this? Who Mm -hmm. the fuck knows? Will we even have Medicaid at the end of this? Mm -hmm. Like, holy shit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh... that's why this rebellion is so important. And it's like, you know, a whole part of it. But I'm just saying if, uh, if anybody's listening in the UK, go to AstraZeneca's uh, headquarters and set up set up an autonomous zone in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. you buy the parking welcome, lot. Welcome to the Astra- AstraZeneca autonomous zone. Exactly. Autonomous <laughs> zone and and like meat pie stand and uh, <laughs> and pub. <laughs> Honestly, I'm the there. AstraZeneca autonomous zone is like a way cooler name than yeah. the Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Sorry, no offense. But I mean, before they started taking pharmaceutical companies' money, ACT UP used to like break into pharmaceutical company headquarters. So you know, whatever. oh yeah, they did. They <laughs> occupied the office too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they got all professional. But <laughs> don't professionalize, folks. <laughs> <laughs> be anti-expertise don't do respectability politics god damn yeah. it just keep it DIY. don't make me tap the sign we will not be decent we will continue to be degenerate and loud <laughs> <laughs> and demanding <Dude. laughs> uh. Ugh. yeah well you know that is it's Actually, that dovetails really well with the conversation that I had with Heron. So maybe this is actually kind of the perfect time to end this. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so stick around after the break. That will be coming up. And again, thank you to our patrons for supporting the show. We appreciate you. And um, if you don't support the show, please consider becoming a patron. Um, We can only do fun stuff with your help. And we appreciate it if you are a patron. 
If we get to 10,000 um, patrons, was... we'll start our own autonomous zone. Just saying right here, right now. <laughs> In the parking lot of AstraZeneca. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every Satire. patron is a member of our autonomous zone. Yeah. Already. yeah. Exactly. We have enough patrons for a real big autonomous zone. <laughs> it has a small... A uh, physical footprint in a Discord server somewhere, <laughs> wherever Discord servers are stored. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it we're, we're currently yeah we currently have an autonomous zone, and, and we can just expand it into satellite autonomous zones, right? Yeah, yeah, and start taking physical space in addition to server yeah. space. I think that sounds like a great plan. Yeah. Um. So yeah, stick around for my interview with Heron after the break. Become a patron, support the show. Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Hell yeah. Cool. Bye. Get in the zone. Get in Auto the zone. zone. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I have a very wonderful surprise for you today. Uh, please welcome Heron Walker, who is a freelance journalist and Jezebel contributor. And uh, for the second week in a row, one of my favorite follows on Twitter is, is joining us. Um, Heron, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me, Beatrice. I'm really happy to be here. So I hadn't asked you on because of this article that you had written like two months ago that came out this week um, in Esquire, which was how essential is my facial feminization surgery? And just aligns very well with the themes of the show in general and the shit that we talk about over and over and over again, but maybe just for people who might not have read the piece, which we'll link to in the description. And if you, if you, if you haven't go do that as soon as you're done listening, but maybe for people who, who haven't read it and aren't familiar with your writing, you could just sort of like set up the scenario for them and, and sort of where you were at two months ago when COVID started and this situation reared its head. Yeah. I want to emphasize that, like you said, you know, it, 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 I wrote it two months ago. Um, it's definitely written from the perspective of being about three to four weeks out from, I guess, mid-March when I'll just speak for myself, not other people, but uh, when I realized just how huge and impactful the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was actually going to be um, almost yeah. seemingly overnight. And I was like, oh, like El Salvador is suddenly like maybe getting further interest in fascism. The U.S. government is suddenly banning people from more countries. Like this is right. a lot more than I, um, than I stupidly gave it credit for what's, what's building. But it, it also is just, you know, it, it, it is, a, it doesn't reflect the current moment with like the Black Lives Matter protests and the uprisings against like police brutality and white supremacy are all around the world or anything. So I, I think that's important to note that there's no, um, mention of any of that in the piece. But, right. um, so anyway, um, the, the essay is about having my facial feminization surgery, which is a transition related surgery postponed four days before it was supposed to happen. Um, like on account of the COVID-19 pandemic and right. New York postponing all 
elective surgeries, meaning non-emergent surgeries, meaning if you're like not going to die or you didn't just break your leg or something. Right. Um, and it was scheduled ahead of time. Even um, uh, different like stage of early stage cancer surgeries were postponed. Mm-hmm. Joint replacement surgeries postponed. Um, another non-translated surgery postponed that usually gets trotted out because cis people tend to take those most, more seriously. But also like <laughs> trans surgeries were postponed as well, um, which if you are not personally familiar with that process, um, this was over, this was about 14 months in the making for me, just from scheduling a consultation with my doctor up to the surgery date, much less like the, um, year and a half to two years of learning about what facial feminization surgery was in the first place and deciding that that was something I wanted. And that was something that I would need to be able to either pay or cover with insurance, um, through a job that I didn't have at the time. And so having to figure out how to get that job in the first place and thankfully was in at, at, at a uh, workplace where my employer sponsored health insurance covered any transition related surgery, which was a victory one through the union at my company. Unions are great. Unionize your workplace. If you still have a work, place in a week but so the the essay not to, I, I just keep tangenting sorry that's um, totally if the essay go off <laughs> the um the essay is um about having that surgery postponed four days before it was supposed to happen and then grappling with I guess most immediately the idea that everything that I'd sort of put into this surgery and everything that I projected onto it and what my life would be like afterwards and all the relief and all the like satisfaction I'd expected to feel yeah and just like the relief of no longer feeling like I needed these hospital bureaucracies anymore, these um, employer uh, healthcare bureaucracies that I was just kind of like going to be able to step away from like all of these bureaucratic processes that had defined so much in my life for the year and a half or so before the surgery. Yeah. Like I, I, I really tried to not put too many eggs into that one basket, but despite myself, I still really I really believe something would be different after I had that surgery and um, something different for the better. And then to suddenly realize just moments before it was going to happen, that that was not going to happen was just like really crushing. It's devastating. Yeah, Yeah. it's devastating. I mean, you talk about in the piece, like how when the pandemic sort of when it became very clear, or at least when state governments started acknowledging that it was potentially an issue that your doctor was able to actually write a letter and you confirmed with the hospital that your surgery would be essential. And I mean, maybe maybe we could sort of talk a little bit about the, the approval process because, you know, from what I understand, a large part of like even being able to get an insurance company to pay for FFS, you have to prove it's essential and provide like years of documentation. And it's a, it's a very arduous process with lots of administrative burdens that is designed to have like such a high barrier of entry and very few insurance plans even like cover this that, you know, it, it really sort of limits who has access to it. And you were able to even sort of get that designation at first because, you know, you just spent like, as you said, like a year and a half, like going through the process of essentially proving that a medically necessary procedure is um, something that you have a right to you know? Um, and then it was like completely undermined after they had initially said that they were, um, going to go forward with it. And then it was essential. They, they went back on that. Right. Yeah. So the, the language is, um, an interesting one. So I have been operating under this linguistic binary of medically necessary versus elective. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
through the process of that was my third time working through the processes of um, getting insurance coverage for a transition related surgery. Um, so I was like very familiar with this um, linguistic difference. And also just as a journalist who often covers uh, trans healthcare, that's it's just something I, I'm also just aware of through my work and everything about like emphasizing mm -hmm. the medical necessity rather than elective um, mm -hmm. nature of these surgeries. So, so you see this language in um, these letters that I and most other trans people who go through insurance um, in order to get these surgeries performed. You see this language in letters that you have to get from uh, mental and physical healthcare professionals. So for every surgery that I've had to do in the last year, so three total, I have had to get a letter from a psychologist, a psychiatrist, as well as my uh, primary care physician who's been administering my hormones. And sorry, that, that makes it sound like um, <laughs> he like almost like I'm going to communion and he slips a hormone under my tongue. I every mean, day. That's, it's like the person that's who, cute. <laughs> if, if, I mean, if it I'm, means more people have access, can we just turn all churches yeah. into trans healthcare clinics? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> the Pope should make me a woman is what I'm trying to say. Um, I think that sounds like a plan. <laughs> sick. Okay, great. We solved it. Great. I'm going to go sign off now. Um, so like every single time I had to get those letters um, and in those letters, they all emphasize uh, language that insurance companies respond to in order to grant you healthcare coverage um, under um, arguments made by WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Also, side note, I don't work in healthcare. And so I'm sure if there are any healthcare transes who are listening, I'm probably going to get some of the details <laughs> wrong because um, I'm not currently working on a reported story about this. So uh, it's kind of just fast and loose and anecdotal for me right now. But um, uh, the language they use is specifically emphasizing in those letters that, um, which are letters written to insurance providers who then decide whether or not I get this care. The language they use is that like Ms. Walker has experienced gender dysphoria since a young age. She um, feels XYZ distress on account of not having this surgery performed or whatever service the surgery would perform for her. Therefore, I deem that this is a medically necessary procedure. It is not elective. It is not cosmetic. Those are the sort of the terms that are used in opposition to medically necessary cosmetic or elective. Mm -hmm. um, say, for example, last year I had a breast augmentation and it was the same process of arguing this is medically necessary versus, um, you know, people get what would otherwise be deemed cosmetic or elective right. breast augmentation all the time. A way of emphasizing to the insurance provider that like this is something the insurance should cover because it is part of a um, gender dysphoria alleviating medical treatment. And when I say this, it's like it's like I'm 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 speaking from the position of how insurance company or basically how this system of like medicalized transition works. I'm not necessarily speaking from my own perspective mm -hmm. on this. I don't talk about my life and my experience in this way or. No, it's just kind of like these are the standard set of administrative parameters that you're essentially forced to fulfill in order to be able to do this without having to start um, a whole like a huge GoFundMe to raise like, you know, six, seven hundred thousand dollars or so. You know, I mean, I think one of the things I always joke about, but it's not a joke at all, is that the fastest way for me to block you is to like come through my DMs and tell me how you're so sad I can't get my essential care because everyone's getting elective surgeries. I don't even like I don't even push back anymore. I just block them immediately because it's such a turf call, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, but, wait, is this like the, the specifically kind of like trans? Oh, no, wait, sorry. Who, wait, what is, what is, what are the services that people are saying they're uh, oh, not like, getting now? Like, no, people just say like, oh, you know, they say to me, they're sorry that I can't get, you know, my uh, infusion because the insurance company is denying it, for example. Oh. Like I was on a medication for okay. seven and a half years and then they just like changed their mind. And, um, you know, or if I just talk about like inequality in healthcare and people can't access it, the amount of people that come through and say, you know, oh, it's just such a shame that, you know, you can't get this with all these people out there getting elective surgeries. Oh, I see. And it's that just sucks. like, fuck <laughs> off. Fuck yeah. all the way off. My God. Think with abundance. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think this is sort of like we were talking about this little off mic, but oftentimes like there is, uh, I think, a strategy within patient populations, at least under our health finance system in America where like because of all the administrative burdens you kind of get put into these like medicalized classes based on like what your needs are because you have to learn the like strategies of appealing for that specific drug or procedure or accommodation etc and you know the the more that we're sort of like divided by population the less that we can like push back against these administrative burdens that are absolutely ridiculous but like each insurance company is a little bit different and each procedure is a little bit different and you need like letters from, a, you know, these people for that. And it's, it's a whole complex system that's just sort of like designed to cut people out or discourage them from continuing at any possible um, moment that they interact, you know, but that translated into trans healthcare is like horrible. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the problems are are just like absolutely amplified, and I think a lot of the things that you're forced to do in the process of getting insurance to cover these procedures are like inhumane, and no one should be asked to have to do that. It reminds me a lot of the process of applying for disability, where you have to just sort of prove to them over and over that you are absolutely worthless and useless without, um, you know, the government support just to get like your Medicare health care. And it's, it's, you know, it's a very psychologically like exhausting thing to have to do. This paperwork takes time. You know, this is like, this is a uh, totally by design. It's, a, it's intentionally set up this way. And it's, it's difficult to even get through like, I think starting hormones in a lot of cases, which maybe might be helped a little bit by the telehealth stuff, but I still worry about about how that could be monopolized. Oh, yeah. Um, so I do know that, <laughs> at least in terms of telehealth right now, I did a story about that maybe like a month or I don't know what time is anymore, but I think it was like a month and a half ago, um, just about how like, because I, I assume that like there were going to be lots of people lost in the cracks of the transition to telehealth, um, or basically because of, um, I think, federal law, around um, uh, Medicare, Medicaid provision, the law required in-person appointments mm -hmm. for all um, gender-affirming clinics that are like, say, like in New York City, we have like Cal and Lord and Apicha and Planned Parenthood, the informed consent clinics, they had to do all their shit in person where suddenly like because of the pandemic, the government lifted that specific provision and all of them transitioned 100% over to um, telehealth and based on the providers and people I spoke to, if anything, like it ironed out the process and kind of revealed how, um, I mean, all the people involved are said that they were hopeful that they could continue using telehealth, at least as an option. Um, in the case of like 
like it just it also improved like accessibility um it yeah. alleviated some of the concerns of trans people specifically around like you know if they had to travel by bus for an hour or something just to get to the appointment one provider said that she'd have like patients who would be late because they also once they got to the clinic wanted to like dress in gender affirming clothing or something which they didn't feel comfortable wearing on the way to the clinic um also as a means of proving that they were the gender they say they were to get the care they needed and like this just cut all of that out of the way yeah Um, i I mean i have friends who would be like okay i can't do anything today because today's the day i have to go to calendar so i have to be there at like 9 a.m because i'm gonna have to wait and it's like a whole day process and you know this stuff is like we pretend that this stuff is like accidental or done because of like funding or whatever but it's not it's like this is discriminatory behavior and it really sucks and I, i mean i am hopeful that that despite the fact that like some aspects of medicalized transition are like highly inaccessible now because of covid that there are that there is like that one silver lining of like maybe maybe these sort of small changes to telehealth can be very helpful in like very specific circumstances, particularly for like rural young people wanting to start HRT. Um, oh, yeah. Which I think is like always been so hard to try and accommodate because rural yeah. healthcare is just crap. Um, yeah, there was a um, <laughs> provider at uh, Mazzoni in Philadelphia I spoke to who'd said that, um, especially for like patients who live like three hours away from Philadelphia who are under 18, um, telehealth just made the whole thing so much easier because they needed a parent with them or maybe both parents with them and coordinating three people's schedules from like three hours away from the clinic they had to go to was just like kind of a nightmare, but then now they can just do it from their home. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you talked about in the uh, towards the end of your piece was, um, you know, the anxiety of this being sort of the death of trans healthcare as we know it, um, mm-hmm. or any sort of semblance of this even mediocre and like inadequate system that we have for trans healthcare. And you sort of talked about how maybe it's actually a good thing, maybe that the end of <laughs> the potential end of capitalism and <laughs> these institutions that we have all um, learned how to navigate in order to survive, as wonderful as the prospect is, I think for a lot of people who rely on pharmaceuticals or procedures like infusions or surgeries in order to like survive, it is also sort of the end of capitalism is scary because it means the the end of the terrible institutions that we're at least used to, you know? Yeah, it was this, like, theory that came to me some point in writing it that, like, maybe capitalism is bad, and um, I'm glad that that came through. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's because there is this big fear um, that this was, I think, like, a little bit more um, explored in earlier drafts and then edited down or pared down or something. But, like, a big um, anxiety I had immediately after it got postponed And once I really took in the gravity of the whole like pandemic happening back in March was um, I felt this very like this competing desire to both see an entirely new world emerge. And then also this um, this fear that also made me feel guilty for feeling it because it felt very like inward and self-serving and narcissistic um, of like, okay, but like, can we do the new world after I get my face done? Um, (laughs) Like. Because I just had this, um, I, I kept thinking about like, I know like Nazi parallels are like World War II parallels are like super reductive or whatever. But I just kept thinking about like the Institute of Sexuality run by Magnus Hirschfeld mm-hmm. in Germany and how like decades of, um, he wouldn't have used the word transgender, but um, transgender healthcare and research that like lays the basis for the model that like I am, have been transitioning under 
Um, yeah. like decades of that was just destroyed. Links were destroyed so much. Like basically now we're, I, I don't know, there, the, we could just be in such a different place. Had Like perhaps if that research had not been destroyed. So it just like flashed through my head, just like that. There's a famous image of Nazis, like after raiding the Institute of Sexuality, burning a big pile of his research. And so it's, I'm, I'm aware historically that like there have been golden ages of transsexual healthcare before and that it can be destroyed in an instant. And um, being a nervous person that I am, I immediately like was like, okay, that's happening again. And I'm just going to go live the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That I was four days away from getting a surgery that no one will ever do again. Um, but <laughs> that like, I think ultimately. That's a very real fear though. Yeah. And obviously that like didn't, that didn't pan out. And like once now I feel like I have my bearings better on like what the impact of the pandemic might actually be versus what it was in that moment when it was just nothing but question marks. I mean, I I think the role of capitalism as it sort of is brought into your piece, I mean, one of the things like for a lot of trans healthcare, you have to sort of go out of the normal hospital system, which then is just like absolutely exhausting to navigate on top of the like, keep my job for the insurance, get the job for the insurance. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it it definitely is not... um that's that's sort of what I would counter whenever I had those thoughts of worrying about like, cool, like this is another golden age of transsexual healthcare and it's uh, all going kaput. And now there's going to be like some dark age or something where we don't have access to this stuff. It's like, I would just counter that thinking with um, a reminder that like, this is not a golden age. This like, <laughs> even when um, like, it's all in all like worked out pretty well for me, which I think makes sense historically. Like this is, uh, model of healthcare that was it's like devised based on understandings of gender it's like its roots are in the um, earlier parts of the 20th century are based in understandings of gender that are like colonial understandings of gender um very ba- very much based around what a white man and a white woman looks like mm-hmm. um and also um historically speaking the trans people who were sort of the primary subjects of experimentation were trans women and also specifically like uh, traditionally feminine trans women, trans women who would be heterosexual and attracted to men after transition. Like mm-hmm. these are like, so I'm, I'm the parallel of who this system was literally designed for. And even still, it's like, this is not a good system, even when it's like working out and serving me, it like ultimately is not serving right. me. So I, that's a thing that I like, would just have to remember a step outside of like the concessions that I've made in order to like make this system make sense um, and realize that it still is bullshit and should not be what it is. Yeah. I mean, like we we have enough administrative burdens as it is like to not have uh capitalism be a part of it, but also cost is a huge part too because if you can't get this insurance approval, I think you said it the insurance brought it down to like $1500, which is still too like a lot for a lot of people, but you know, like to then have to be paying your whole deductible when the average person doesn't have more than $300 for an emergency, it's it's just like absolutely ridiculous. For a lot of people, I think the only reason why they're at the jobs they're at day in, day out is because of their fucking health insurance. Or I have friends that have been like, well, I hit my deductible already, so I'm going to stay at this job even though my boss is sexually harassing me because my I, I like intentionally tried to hit my deductible and then I'm going to try and get my surgery scheduled after that. And like... It, you know, to to be forced to put up with sexual harassment in the workplace, in some cases, just like shitty jobs, you know, 
bad bosses, bad work conditions, just for like your basic care really yeah. fucking sucks. And, you know, maybe it isn't the worst thing if this is sort of the the end mm-hmm. of America for yeah, right now. Like a, a- I'm a deeply paraphrased quote because I, the book is somewhere 20 feet away from me and I don't know where, but by <laughs> uh, this Canadian writer, Kai Chang Tom called them, I hope we choose love. And it's a collection of poems and essays, um, uh, all musing on um, like trans community, queer community, and also um, the apocalypse and what that actually means, what that could look like, mm. what it could mean for all of us. And um, so one way she frames it is like, it definitely feels like we're at the end of, it came out, I think like the end of last year. So kind of pressing for everything right now um, is I, she says something about how it really seems like we're on the verge of something or at the end of the world as we know it, but also maybe we're just at the beginning of something new. Um, And I I really like that way of thinking about this um, as the end of things that should be coming to an end um, of capitalism, of, Mm-hmm. Um, all the institutions therein, um, white supremacy and patriarchy and employer sponsored healthcare to be more specific to and tying healthcare to employment, entire models of healthcare that are not community run, um, or run by the people who are being served by them. There's just like a lot of exploitative institutions and systems that are in dire need of replacement with something mm-hmm. new and not reform and I mean, for example, police, like for a more topical example, that's not in my right. essay at all. Um, I don't know, just abolish the shit out of everything. <laughs> and then we can like start start with something new. Yeah, I'm tired of being a Cassandra. Um, I don't want to be like predicting the future and everyone rolling their eyes. And then three weeks later being like, I really we didn't want it to come true. We have this bad habit on on the show of being like, oh, it sounds like CMS is trying to do this with this rule change. And then four weeks later, it's like, yes, CMS is trying to make it so that when someone dies in a retirement home, you don't have to do an autopsy automatically. Like, yeah, like, I don't want to be right about this stuff. It fucking sucks. Can we stop? Um, you're also working right now on a fundraiser that's going on starting today, right? Which is the 10th of June and running through the 13th on Instagram Live. Yeah. So, um, so the fundraiser itself is, it's not my idea. I'm just one person who is sort of being mobilized to support, uh, this greater fundraiser. So, um, a really good friend of mine, Rio Sophia, who's like an artist and, uh, works at, um, queer art. And also is like mm-hmm. a community organizer. She organizes also Body Hack. If you've ever been to that party, at um, it's a TGNC happy hour at Mood Ring. Remember places? Um, it's at Mood Ring in Bushwick like once a month <laughs> back in the day. Now it's on Zoom though, and it's gone like a little international. But um, Oh, that's um, so cute. I didn't realize it. Yeah, she's a delightful little demon. I love her so much. And um, she has been organizing this week to fundraise for... GLITS, which is a, an organization that stands for Gays and Lesbians in a Transgender Society. It's all run and operated by this brilliant legend woman, Kyan Shaw, who's like an icon in New York's sex worker and trans communities, um, where she almost, not, not entirely single-handedly, but like a lot of this work has just been like disproportionately just her doing it of like transitioning mm-hmm. formerly incarcerated uh, queer and trans people out of prisons and also like people seeking asylum in the U.S. and just literally housing people and finding long-term housing and in these transitional moments where all the horrible institutions that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago mm-hmm. can just totally like destroy 
any possibility from that transition out of, um, out of prisons, out of, um, you know, just coming to the U.S. on asylum. Um, so right now she's specifically raising, um, originally it was $200,000, I think, but she's upped it to 1 million based on the support she's gotten That's awesome. uh, in the last two days. I know it rolls, um, to secure some long-term stable housing for black trans people in New York city. There's, um, uh, so anyway, like Rio reached out to me and like dozens of other people to try and mobilize all of us to like find ways to raise a couple thousand dollars each collectively through our networks. And so one idea that I had was to do a series of live shows on Instagram. So the first one is tonight on Wednesday, June 10th. And the last one is Saturday, June 13th. And every single night I'm just going to do a conversation with a special guest. First, there's Ty Mitchell. Uh, writer and porn star extraordinaire um, Alex B. Green is on Thursday. Um, another brilliant writer and journalist, the poet Jamie Hood, um, aka Very Hot nice. Mom on Twitter, Love is going to be my guest on Friday. I know she rolls. Um, Comes like Goddess Queen, um, and then uh, Edge Slayer is this like amazing musician and nightlife organizer down in New Orleans, um, who I'm really happy to have on for Saturday. And we're going to be talking about men and not liking them, liking them, whatever. It's based on this podcast I did like <laughs> two years ago for six months that like I really liked, but I wasn't making money doing it. And eventually just like had to stop um, called Why Do I Like Men? And um, I've just noticed like over the years, like randomly people would be like, oh, I love your podcast. And I'm like, thanks. I like barely made a podcast, <laughs> but um, it's good though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you listen to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to it when it was like on the air in real time <laughs> back in what, like 2018 or something. Yeah. Wait, that's so and cool. then I was very sad when it, it went away, but you know, if you ever want to start it up again, I, uh, I know a producer who can help. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind. Yeah. I just, I, I, I really like um, the, I, I like hearing that feedback that like people are like, Oh, I love that podcast. You did, even though I, in the grand scheme of things, barely did a podcast. Um, it was like something that I made entirely just like on my own and like not through a uh, media organization or a newsroom or mm -hmm. something like, and so the, I don't know. I, I love the idea that something I made like on no one's co-sign, but my own um, three years later mm -hmm. has people being like, Oh, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, good. It's like, it's, um, the proof is there, definitely. And, and it's nice to not have to be, like, beholden to an editor who has their own agenda who wants to, like, oh reframe. Yeah. You know, so that's why I love it personally. It's much more fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's That definitely is something that I loved about the whole process and that there wasn't someone there to sort of, like, correct my ideas or... Sorry, I love working with editors, but sometimes... Yeah. I don't know, media as a whole. Um, <laughs> it's very rare that I've gotten... I've gotten to work with trans women editors before, like Raquel Willis, Meredith Toulouson, um, both brilliant and also some of my best work has come out of like those collaborations, but um, it's not very often. And so it's like, it's, it's a little frustrating yeah. and exhausting to constantly have to like negotiate my ideas in order to fit a perspective. Sometimes the, uh, to basically write for a cis reader on subject matter that I don't want to write about for a cis yeah. reader. Um, yeah. And then not realizing that's going to happen until halfway through the process. And then yeah, that's um, <laughs> I don't know, just feeling kind of demoralized about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that doesn't happen with this. It's going to be, um, I think it's going to be fun. If you want to uh, donate to Glitz, there is a link to the donations um, on my Twitter at Heron Walker on Twitter, H-A-R-R-O-N-W-A-W-K-E-R. 
and also in my link in bio on Instagram, which is H-A-R-N-W-A-W. And we'll also put links in the episode description for everybody as well. So Cool, cool. Yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, if people donate, they can ask you a question, right? If they send uh, proof of their donation. Yeah. So um, if you do donate and you want to, there's going to be like a Q&A portion on every live show at the end of it. Um, so if you have a question for me and the other guest, um, or just one of us, um, just make a donation, take a screenshot and then send it to me, maybe through my DMS, if you want to, and along with a question and we'll answer it live during the stream. Very cool. Um, we'll definitely post uh, links to all that as well. And, um, I hope that, I hope you guys can actually all reach 1 million. That would be fucking awesome. Yeah. I, um, the last update I saw from Cayenne on Instagram was I think just over $400,000, um, that's awesome. Yeah. So I definitely keep donating, but, um, the momentum is really, really there. And I think it would be really cool if, if your listeners don't want to be a part of something huge. Um, that'd be really cool if they joined in or at least shared the I'm gonna, donation link yeah, and stuff. Like that. I'm going to bother our entire discord <laughs> to come too. We can do it as a group, like a field trip together. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on here and I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, thank you for all of your writing. I'm a I'm a big fan. So not to fangirl out, but I appreciate it. Thanks, Rachel. So, um, this, is, uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Well, anytime. You're welcome back to the panel whenever you want. Cool.
Thank you.